Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of Swisspreneur. Today we're going to have a chat with Cedric Waldburger, apparel entrepreneur, investor and crypto enthusiast. Cedric is also well known for being an essentialist. He owns only 64 things, all of them in black. Now let's have a chat with him about his entrepreneurial career and what makes Switzerland special regarding startups. Before we get started with the episode, I would like to introduce you to SBB Startup. If you think that your company is a good fit for the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them or learn more about their startup programs at sbbstartup.com. Cedric, a very warm welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's very great to have you on the show today. Um, before we get started, uh, I would like to uh, quickly explain what you currently do. I checked your LinkedIn profile. Uh, you are involved in 11 different projects at the same time at this very moment and many, many others uh, that you had in the past. So that also goes uh, towards my first question. How can you deliver value to 11 different projects at the same time? Sure. Yeah. First, uh, thanks for having me. Super excited about uh, finally meeting you in person. Uh, we've we've chatted online for a while. Um, it's good to finally be in the same room. Um, yeah, my LinkedIn currently lists eleven projects that I'm uh, presently involved with, um, but there's various degrees. Um, some of them I'm involved with as an investor. Others I've co-founded um, a long time ago, and they don't take a lot of my day-to-day uh, -day, uh, brain activity. And then uh, some like Definity right now take uh, the majority of my focus and, and brain energy uh, on a day-to-day on -day basis. Um, how, how am I trying to support or provide value for all these different projects? Um, totally depends on the project. Um, uh, I do believe in sharing a lot. Um, that's why I stay involved because I think that uh, very often what I learn in one young company over here can also help a young company over here. And so, um, pointing out synergies, sharing stories uh, and experiences from one uh, young company with another, um, that often helps. Um, and then there's also, uh, there was a different time in my life where I, right now I'm focused on one project, Definity. So I spent 95% of my time on that. Mm -hmm. um, but before that, for about three years, I was mostly an investor. I spent most of my time working with young companies, investing in them, and then also actively coaching them and working with them. Um, and there, I, my focus was not one single company, but my focus or my motivation to do that was to learn about what goes well and what doesn't go well in a young company's life or first stage. Um, and so there was a focus, but it was not on a single company, but it was on the learning opportunity as a whole. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And you said you, you wanted to understand and learn what goes well and what doesn't go well in a young company's age. Do you have any key takeaways from your past experience in that regard? Sure, I think some are uh, in line with what you read in a lot of books. Like um, typically, um, if there's more than one founder, teams of two to three or two to four people, usually I've seen work better than uh, single founders or sole, uh, fo solo founders. Um, another one is focus. Um, is the founder or their founders, are they 100% focused on what they're building? Um, do they have a clear vision and a clear strategy that they execute or are they kind of opportunistically looking at step by step uh, what's next for them? Um, where focus is obviously much, much better and uh, a lot more uh, 
efficient than a zigzag course. Um, and then I guess there's many, many small um, experiences as well, both from observation and also being involved in a company at an early age um, myself. Um, number one, and I think we'll talk about this later as well, is um, it's all about the team. In the end, there's no good market, there's no good product if there's no good team. Um, yeah, I think that that's one of the key takeaways that I um, probably a few years ago uh, would not have seen this clearly, but um, having a team that works well together, that's complementary um, and kind of like uh, consists of different people with different skills um, is key for any startup success. Awesome. And how did you choose where you get involved yourself uh, in sort of which projects to focus on or which projects to even get involved with at all? How did you make these yeah. decisions? So I'm super curious. I, uh, I think one of the things that uh, drive me in life is just uh, learning. Um, always finding new areas um, that I can learn about that I do not know much about yet. Um, so that was always the, exp the reason why I got involved with companies um, early on. Uh, MediaSign was the first company that I started with a friend of mine, Fabian. And we, we were just two naive teenagers looking back. Uh, they were just excited about um, the internet and building websites, uh, designing stuff and helping other people uh, ultimately. Um, and then when it comes to being an investor, um, with Tenderloin, we set up a fund and invested in two categories of companies. Number one, we thought there was a, an opportunity for uh, e-commerce players in Switzerland. Um, Amazon is not here. Um, none of the, the other large marketplaces from the EU are here. Um, so we thought there's an opportunity for niche, high margin uh, players. Uh, that was one basket, and the other basket was a bit more loosely defined as companies that, once they do reach a certain scale, can serve another 1,000 to 10,000 users without adding a single staff on, on the company side. Cool. And like sort of these investments, I think that's a like, pretty different game uh, compared to founding your own company. Um, how do you go about this and so, sort of also investing at such a young age as, mm -hmm. as you were back then when you made your first investment? That's not the normal path or the regular path uh, that investors take. How do you learn about that? And how did you also sort of probably get your first money to invest? How did that happen? Yeah, I'll try to tackle all these questions. So number one, um, I think I was very fortunate that I got that opportunity. Um, um, at the same time, I knew that I was going to make mistakes um, early on. Um, I think investments, at least in my experience, um, the success of your investments uh, depend on two things, luck and experience. Um, and so the first investments that we made were much, much smaller than the ones we made later on. Um, just knowing that we will make mistakes and that our first moves will probably lead to a very steep learning curve. What so, does that mean in, in sort of the founding amount that you put into yeah, this so company? We put, we, uh, put together um, roughly four, four million Swiss francs and set out to invest it in 10 different companies knowing that Y10, um, just from reading online, reading books, um, and, and working with uh, experience that other people shared with me, like I think at this early stage, it's, it's a very risky stage. So typically, um, what you hear is that out of 10 companies that you're going to invest in at the seed stage or early on, seven, you're going to completely lose, they're going to shut down. On two, you're probably going to make your money back. And then there's the 10th one, which will generate a 20 to 50x return. Um, and uh, so far, it looks like that's more or less accurate uh, based on the portfolio that we put together. Yeah, yeah but so uh, coming back to your question, 
for roughly 400k per company. Um, but our first investment was about 50 grand into a uh, into a company, uh, knowing that it could all go belly up and be a bad decision. Sure, but also great learning experiences. Yes. That's your main motivation. I, I think uh, being able to go through that process early on and making these experiences is extremely uh, uh, valuable for me. I feel very fortunate because it uh, it's something that always comes up, right? Investing in, whether it's in companies or in my own projects or um, in the stock market, I think it's, uh, it's just extremely valuable to, because I, I think I learn a lot about myself as well. Uh, for example, one key takeaway was that I used to spend a lot of time with the companies that did not do well in our portfolio mm -hmm. and completely um, miss out on, on touching or, or creating touch points with projects that do, did really well, which is intuitive, but not rational at all, right? Um, I mean, especially knowing that there's probably going to be one or two that do really well that will, make all, will generate all the profits. It'd be far healthier to just spend time with them instead of trying to save investments that are clearly going to go um, down to zero. Um, but that was very interesting. I, I mean, I, I would consider myself a, mostly a rational person, um, but I, I saw that I, uh, I was making irrational decisions in, in regards to how I spent my time. And uh, it took me probably two years to realize that and, and adjust and, and build a bit of a framework that makes me more conscious of like, who should I, which project should, should I really spend time on? How does that framework look like? For me, it has a lot to do with writing. Uh, because once I get my thoughts out onto paper or into a video or, um, or I communicate in some, some way, even with, my, with Fabian, who's uh, also my partner in Tenderloin Ventures, our investment company, um, it really helps to formulate what I think and bring it down on paper, black and white. And then it's a lot easier for me to say, okay, this just does not look like it's gonna be successful. So okay. if the founder needs anything from me, I'm more than happy to help, but I'm not gonna proactively try and push him in a certain direction. Um, and I should rather spend time on those projects that do well and maybe proactively reach out to the founder and see if I can generate value for, for them. Do you think that this sort of misallocation of your time focusing on the not so well performing startups, was that based on emotions that you had? Like, I don't want to, to lose the money that I invested there or was there any other reason that you could think of? So I think there's a study that says the most successful VCs are those where um, the cases that do not go well fail the quickest. And it makes sense, right? Because then once they failed and they're bankrupt or um, they're sold, um, for a small price, um, you get a very good idea of uh, um, what to focus on, or at least they don't capture your attention anymore. Um, I think the worst is a company that's kind of like a zombie that um, never does really well, but keeps raising money over and over again. They always capture your attention, right? Because it's the companies that have problems are the ones that email you, that ask you for your attention, that um, you get into uh, arguments and discussions in uh, with. And those founders that run a, a really good company that do really well without your attention, I mean, they're not going to naturally ask for your attention. So those are not the ones that end up in your inbox. So I think that's the number one reason. It's just naturally uh, you spend more time with the stuff that's going wrong. Uh, we all have a, or most of us have a negative bias, like stuff that goes wrong uh, hurts a lot more than stuff that goes well. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think just being conscious of that uh, bias, writing things down, talking through them, making conscious decision what to spend time on and how much time to spend on them. Um, 
help me uh, compartmentalize a bit more. Cool. You also mentioned focus before. Uh, what are sort of your top recommendations to have this laser focus when you're building a startup? Focus uh, very often is connected to being present, doing one thing at a time, being um, having linear thoughts instead of trying to do things in parallel or multitask. What really helps me is, um, again, it, for me, it has a lot to do with writing. So for example, every 90 days, I try to set goals for um, how I want to live my life, where I want to have an impact. And also, um, very often that answers the question where I do not want to have an impact for the next 90 days or 60 or whatever the time period might be. Um, so I think for me, it's all about consciously saying yes to initiatives that I want to spend time and energy on. And then it just naturally means that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on a lot of other things. Uh, one uh, maybe very visible um, example in my life is that uh, early on I realized I what makes me happy is learning. Learning about the process of building a young company, solving co complex problems. And once I've realized that, I, I realized that I can let go of a lot of other things in my life. Um, some of it being physical things or materialistic things, like actual stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and that led to um, me getting rid of everything that kept me from traveling and spending time with the projects that I got involved with, um, all the way to the point where I didn't even have a, an apartment anymore, became homeless. Absolutely, just like uh, on, on a free will basis. Um, before we get deeper into that topic, I would also like to, to quickly have a chat about the Swiss military. Uh, sure. The army service is mandatory in Switzerland, and you are currently also uh, serving your, your duty. In, in what way has the Swiss army supported or hindered your entrepreneurial career? So I did my um, basic training or like the first. Um, so here, if you do military service, typically you um, go for at least 21 weeks when you become a soldier. Sometime at the age of like 18 till 22, I think is when most people go. Um, and then after that, you go back for, um, I think they're called repetitioner. What's the English word? I, I think repetition course. Yeah, repetition course. Uh, every year you go back to refresh your military knowledge uh, for typically about three weeks per year. Um, so I, I would make a big difference between the two of them. I, when I first went for basic training, um, I stayed for almost a year, became an officer, and that was a, a really good time in my life. I learned a lot about... Um, I, it was the first time that I spent like a year outside the classroom. Before that, I went to high school and um, uh, yeah, I started university afterwards. So high school and all uh, grade one through 10, 11. Um, it was a really good experience in terms of uh, a number of things. Spending time outside the classroom. Uh, second, spending time with people from all walks of life. Um, I realized I tend to spend, I think we, we all to a certain degree do that. We spend time in a very narrow social band, meaning we, we surround ourselves with people that are very similar to us. Um, so the military was nice because everyone um, has the same uniform. So you don't, you don't judge people by how they look. You don't know what they do in their civilian life. Um, so you get a lot of inputs and ideas from um, all kinds of like different social bands and uh, people with different backgrounds. So that was a great experience. Um, I did a full year, uh, then went um, and got my bachelor's and master's degree at ETH, um, started traveling, working abroad. Um, and so it happened that I would do my first time back in the military only after, I think, nine years. 
by that time I came back, didn't even really know how to uh, take my uh, rifle apart and put it back together or pistol. Back then, it definitely helped me as a, uh, when I did my officer's training, I could uh, lead a group of about 30 people um, through uh, obviously different setups than you do in a startup. But there's certain commonalities, I think, in regards to like you being a leader, you being um, having to be positive, even though there might be tough times for you as well at some point. Um, so that was a great experience. Now going back um, and doing the service every year, um, especially working in an international setup, it's not always easy because A, there's no one that does my job if I'm gone for three weeks. And there's not always uh, that understanding, not everyone understands um, that Swiss people um, do that or Swiss male do that. And uh, sure. uh, so, so usually there's a bit of explanation um, to be done. Um, but I also have to say I'm very fortunate. There's a, uh, I have a good, I have a good, setup when I go back. I mean, obviously I'm talking to you right now. Um, I'm able to spend a bit of time at the office when I have someone else covering my shift. Um, so usually for me, it works out quite well. If you can organize it that well, that's also very important. Um, military service is also a very big thing in Israel, for example, because they have also this very, let's say, like tech focus where a lot of startups are then born out of the people who did the military service, which is also mandatory there. Are there also like very like practical things, for example, focused on technology that you could take away from the from the Swiss Army, or is this something that's missing from your perspective? So I have a few friends who are in the uh, Israeli Defense Forces (IDF), um, and I think they're very famous for having a large focus on um, cyber-related threats. Um, I think that's something that um, in Switzerland is handled by a professional unit. So that's not people that have a civilian life and only go back to the army uh, three weeks per year. Mm -hmm. um, that said, my unit also works in uh, electronic warfare. Um, so we get to use with systems that then uh, help and, and uh, support the uh, intelligence services of Switzerland, which is interesting. But three weeks a year is just not enough to get, to get deep and, and really understand what we're doing or really... Um, take away a lot of technology or new knowledge. Um, so I think it's more the other way around, like the, the military actually profits a lot or benefits a lot from the fact that people have a civilian life and they constantly educate themselves. Um, in my unit, there's a lot of uh, people with a computer science background. Um, so it's actually quite interesting to go back and hear what everyone else does in their civilian life. And there are also some uh, quite nice connections you can take away from, from that service, I guess. I think, I think it was a lot more important back in the day. Um, I'd say probably like 20 years ago, it was a lot easier, like for, at least from what I've heard, like it was always mandatory to have done a military or to follow a military career if you wanted to do a career in banking mm -hmm. in Switzerland. Um, I think now, yeah, it, it does expose you to a lot of new people um, every year, uh, which is great. Um, it's interesting uh, to get to know them. Um, but I don't think there's this mapping anymore where uh, one career, career in your civilian life maps to a career in your uh, military life. Before, you also mentioned that you chose to become homeless and you also get rid of a lot of physical possessions that you had. So when looking at your LinkedIn profile, you were you're working at 11 different projects at the same time. That's way above average of a normal person but you own only 64 things. That's sort of your number that you will never get rid of. That's way below the average of a normal person. And 
how does that fit together? How does that work out for you? Because this seems to be somewhat contradictory. I like making tough decisions or being very strict or disciplined about decisions. So once I had decided that I do want to expose myself to all these learning opportunities at different startups all over the world, I wanted to create a setup where I could travel without much friction. And what I realized is that having a flat here or having too much stuff, um, having so much stuff that I would need to check in stuff when I travel would just hinder me in pursuing that. Um, so that was the reason why I reduced all my stuff into a backpack and was able to travel uh, almost 365 um, days of the year. In regards to the, having only so many items um, really supported my focus on learning about how to build a startup. Mm-hmm. Now, um, learning about a startup uh, for me happened in parallel at different companies, but I was not a founder or like CEO at all of those companies. I, I was an investor or uh, advisor or different kind of roles, or I was still on the board uh, of a company that I co-founded, but was not involved in the day-to-day anymore. I think that's what um, allowed me to to be present in so many different projects at the same time. Um, 2018 is a very interesting year for me. Um, Beginning of this year, I made the decision that uh, the learning curve had kind of flattened um, looking at all these different opportunities. At the same time, I could see a very steep learning curve um, for my involvement in Definity. There's a lot of extremely smart people that we were able to attract. Um, it's an extremely interesting uh, project and vision that our founder uh, laid out. So it's, uh, I decided that that's where my main focus should be going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, it also meant that I have to travel a bit less because we're, we're basically, we have two offices, one here in Zurich and one in Palo Alto. We're going to open more, but there's only going to be so many uh, different places where we're going to have an office. So there's going to be a bit less travel and more focus on one company. Um, for now, I've still stuck to just 64 things um, because it's just convenient. And I, I realized I don't really need more. Um, but we'll see, if the, we'll see if the balance shifts the other way now. Um, but for now, I think it's a very, uh, it's a very good setup. I, uh, I feel that there's a lot for me to learn at Definity. And so uh, I'm trying to do what I've done with things, uh, with companies now and projects. So I'm trying to spend all my time on one, one thing or as, as few as possible. You just mentioned Definity. I think uh, listeners would be very curious to hear more about that. What is Definity and why is this relevant uh, to the world? Yeah, so Definity is building a, uh, an infrastructure that is based on blockchain technology. Um, Because it's based on blockchain technology, it inherits some of the properties that blockchain brought to the world. Um, Some common applications might be Bitcoin or uh, different tokens like Ethereum. Um, And typically, um, what blockchain enables you to have is a very transparent, trustless environment. Trustless meaning you can trust code, you can see what's going to happen if you give the system a certain input. You can, even before you do it, Uh, see which output will uh, be generated by a certain input. So you don't need to trust the third party anymore. Um, And now Definity takes that vision of these token networks um, a bit further and wants to provide an infrastructure or will provide an infrastructure that allows you to run any kind of application in a decentralized setup. In a sense, um, I I think probably a lot of your listeners have probably heard about of the term smart contract sometime within the last 24 months. Um, that's a term that was very made very popular by Ethereum. Ethereum is probably the largest platform for smart contracts or decentralized apps um, to date. 
And if you want to use a very, very simple analogy, um, you could look, like if we look back 20 years, uh, 19, in the 1990s, when we still used a, uh, a modem to go online, 56K or ISDN, uh, we knew that things like YouTube or Facebook or um, all these content-heavy uh, applications would be possible on the internet, but the bandwidth that we had access to was just not big enough to make them, make them practical. And I think the same is true for today's uh, decentralized world. Um, even though a lot of these applications that we envision, supply chain management, digital identity, uh, decentralized lending, and so on and so forth, um, they're all possible in theory, but they're just not practical yet. And now Dfinity is going to be similar to how ADSL enabled all these applications by providing more bandwidth. Dfinity provides a lot better algorithms um, that scale a lot better in the decentralized world and will hopefully enable uh, a lot of these applications to finally reach more or bigger scale. Awesome. I think that's a very interesting project to keep an eye on uh, in the future. What is your, your role at Definity? So I've, I've had a few different roles over time. Um, at the very beginning when I uh, joined the team, uh, it was just four or five of us. I helped set up the foundation here. So Definity is run out of a Swiss foundation. Our first office was in Palo Alto, near San Francisco. And that was kind of the, the, big, the first big project. So a lot of operations and uh, legal, a lot of accounting. Um, and it was super interesting because we were kind of uh, breaking new grounds, um, uh, using a foundation uh, to build something that uh, could also be seen as a company, um, to build more trust, to be more decentralized. Um, was a very interesting approach. And, and uh, I've learned a lot along the way. Um, now, since then, I've had various roles. I, for example, um, opened, I was uh, fortunate to be able to open this office that we're sitting in right now for Definity in Zurich um, once we hire more people here in uh, Europe. Um, and then I'm also managing most of the web properties um, for Definity right now. So there's Definity.org um, that I manage with a team. We're currently starting to build the developer portal, which will give any developer a very quick and easy intro and way to get started uh, building applications on on the Definity infrastructure. Um, so yeah, it's exciting because I, I feel like even though before I had many different projects in parallel and now it's just one project um, or one company or one um, business that I focus on, mm -hmm. um, on, one layer under that, there's still like many different projects that, uh, that I'm working on, which is super exciting. And how do you actually become part of the team? How did that first initial contact yeah. probably to the founder happen that got you in business with Definity? Yeah, so it goes back all the way till to 2012 when I was working at a company called SumUp in Berlin. And I was working with a guy there that uh, uh, would borrow my laptop for over lunch breaks um, to mine some Bitcoins on them. <laughs> and uh, uh, I never saw those Bitcoins, unfortunately. <laughs> but we stayed in touch and he later on went to Silicon Valley and worked with other uh, token projects and then met our founder Dominic um, I think sometime in 2015 and they started to collaborate and uh, build early prototypes for what would later become Definity. and then in 2016 when they had reached a point where they were pretty sure that they want to launch this or um, build build a certain uh, institution around the, the project um, formalize the project in a way um, they they realized they wanted to do that through a Swiss foundation. And that's how um, my friend uh, thought of me. 
Um, and uh, it went pretty quick. We had a few Skype calls. I flew out, um, was immediately uh, super fascinated by the founder uh, and his vision, Dominic, um, and also fascinated by how much there is to learn from me. Um, because even though I had followed the space kind of loosely over the years, mm -hmm. um, it was really uh, in 2016 when I started to uh, think a lot more about decentralization, blockchain, and all the terms that are connected to that. Awesome. There are also very well-known investors involved with Definity. Uh, most well-known, I think, is Andreessen Horowitz, a very, very well-known venture to capital firm from the Silicon Valley. How do you feel sort of their influence or that they're also involved with the project? Do you feel any difference compared to the other projects that you had in the past? Yeah, so I'm not, um, I might not be able to speak of first-hand experience because I'm not uh, typically interacting with them. I've, uh, I, I see some of the, the interactions on a, on a second degree. Um, and, and from what I see, they're extremely helpful. They have a pretty large team, uh, a staff, in their uh, corporate office that they lend out to startups or that they use to give inputs. Um, for example, recruiting. Um, when you're still young and you're trying to grow quickly, they can um, share a lot of experiences from other companies, but they can also lend out a recruiter to you and, and help you make your first few uh, hires, um, help you set up the process uh, and give a lot of valuable inputs. Um, and then on the other end, they bring together a lot of very interesting companies. Um, so when they put together an event around, let's say, blockchain, for example, um, the people that you would meet from all these other startups um, are usually super interesting. They're usually also very successful founders um, or uh, executives involved in those businesses that they invested in. Um, so it's usually a very fruitful exchange. This model, like with, where you get a lot of support by your investors, seems to be very American. Is this also the case for, for Swiss VCs or Swiss investors? Or do you think that this would be a great model to also adapt here in, in Switzerland? Hmm. I think a lot of uh, investors uh, here or in Germany would also agree that um, the more value you can provide to, to a startup, the better, both for your portfolio's success mm -hmm. and also because it gives you an edge over uh, your competitor. Even I always try to be smart money, right? I always try to uh, think about the, the projects that I invested in. I always try to think about what kind of workshops can I do? Where can I help them? Where can I contribute target expertise or domain expertise um, and contribute to the startup success? Mm -hmm. But to be realistic, I think the, uh, the VC world is, I don't know the exact number, but it feels like it's 100 times bigger in Silicon Valley than it is here, just in terms of the amount of different VCs that you have. Um, uh, the amount of funding that goes that goes into uh, that geography. Um, so to some degree, it's unrealistic to think that a VC here in Switzerland might might have a team of fifty plus people uh, just working for their portfolio companies. Um, but I think in general, people would agree. And what I've seen uh, work really well is um, angel funding or receiving Series A funding here in Switzerland or Central Europe. Mm -hmm. And then as the startup expands and becomes a bit more of a global player to attract US funding as well and then profit from those kind of uh, smart money benefits that an investor might bring to the table. Great. Based on your experience, when is a good timing to make this step? Hmm. Are there certain revenue targets or certain growth targets that you should meet? Because from what I heard from other people saying is it's pretty hard to stay in Europe and getting funded by a, 
a US VC, you actually have to be there physically with an office in the US. I think that's also when you are able to profit the most from their experience. Um, so one of the projects that I'm involved with, they, um, they build an online style guide solution. Um, so they build a product, it's a B2B product, and um, they're all based, the, most of their employees are based here in uh, Switzerland right now, near St. Gallen. Mm -hmm. um, and they uh, just decided to open an office in the US um, to expose themselves a bit more to the US market. They were able to attract a, an investor from the UK. So the time difference is a lot less, the flight times are a lot less. And uh, what I've seen is very often uh, bigger funds in the US would have a satellite office in the UK. I think exactly for that reason, to be closer to the potential that Europe has to offer. Um, so it's still early, but uh, so far that seems to work really well. Um, they meet face to face about once a month for a day or two. Um, um, and that's something that can easily be done with a flight from the UK to Switzerland. Um, speaking of when's the right time to scale to the US, I think um, from the different startups that I've had insights into, um, usually there's an organic um, sign that it's time to move across the pond. Um, I think you don't want to prematurely jump over there and then deal with the time zone differences while you have to figure out the problem um, both here and six or nine hours apart from here. Mm -hmm. um, but once, you're, once your business some, somewhat stabilizes, becomes somewhat sustainable, you've, you've figured out your first processes, your company has grown to maybe like 30 to 50 people. Um, when there's a natural pull, when you start seeing either a lot of users or a lot of uh, customers in the US, I think then it's just a natural next step to open an office there because it is a very interesting market for a lot of type of businesses, right? There's one language, uh, for the most part, one jurisdiction, um, and you can move over there and get access to another 370 million people roughly, yeah. It's really great to hear from your experience, very interesting stories. Before we conclude the episode, I have a last question for you, and that's regarding tools, gadgets, or additional resources that you use or could recommend. Is there anything in that regard that you would like to share with our listeners? Sure. So uh, one tool or framework that I've built for myself, and I, I've talked about it briefly, um, is this 90-day preview and review process. Um, what I've learned is, maybe you've made the same experience once, um, we sometimes set annual goals. Like, it's January 1st, and you feel like you've left all the baggage from the past year behind you, and it's a fresh start, and... Uh, I was enthusiastic and excited and I said, okay, this year I'm going to change these six or seven things, right? And I tried to approach them all at the same time and I tried to eat healthy, go to the gym every day and build two new businesses and all of that at once. And what I've seen was that January, I was super excited. February, I maybe skipped once or twice, but for the most part, I did pretty well. March, ah, it was not so great, and then by April I had mostly forgotten about, uh, about my goals, um, and the energy was completely gone, and I felt like it was a failure. Mm -hmm. And so I asked myself, how can I change that into something more positive, something that works? Because it's a great feeling to leave all that baggage behind and, and uh, utilize that energy that January first uh, implanted in my head. So I asked myself, why did I fail? And I think one of the key reasons was that, for me, it's very hard to know where I'm going to be in 12 months from now not just geographically, but 
just in, in a state of mind. Like 12 months, so much can happen, right? And I have no idea how I'm, how I'm going to feel 12 months from now and what my priorities just naturally are going to be. So I asked myself, what's a better uh, time frame? And for me, what I found out is 90 days is a lot more natural. Three months, that's long enough for me to make some actual change. Um, I think you've um, owned a company in the health uh, and fitness uh, area, right? So exactly. 90 days for me, for example, is a, is a time frame where I can get really fit if I spend enough time. Um, so it's not, it's not too short to make actual progress, but it's also, um, uh, sorry, it's not, yeah, it's not too short to make actual progress, but it's also not so long that I have no idea where I'm going to be. 90 days from now is February. I have a rough idea of where I'm going to be in February and what I'm going to be doing. So I, so I use this 90-day uh, time window, and then I uh, sit down at the end of each quarter after 90 days, and I write an email to my future self. And I write about uh, what has gone looking back. I write a review part um, about all areas of my life. For me, those are 12, but it could be 3 or it could be 20. Um, I just sat down and I asked myself, okay, what's, if I had to describe my life in areas, what would those be? So I write about them, and I focus on how I feel. Do I feel good? Do I feel bad? Did I regret anything? Did I miss out on anything? No, 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 And then I ask myself particular questions as well. For example, for the area of friends, who did I spend enough time with, or who did I spend time with? Who should I have spent time with? Who disappointed me? And so on and so forth. So that gives me a very clear understanding of my state of mind and where do I stand right now. And then in a second portion, I write a preview. And... In the preview, I describe changes that I'm going to make and how I'm going to measure them. And I try to not have more than two, ideally only one change that I want to make over the next 90 days, because that gives me focus again. Uh, just one target to focus on. What is your current focus in that regard? Right now, I'm still working on this, like getting um, rid of distractions, getting uh, very focused on just one project, Definity, and finding a new home for all the other projects. And I'm almost there, um, but I have about a month left in a year. Okay. So uh, I think I'm, I'm on good track. Um, and uh, yeah, that's my current focus. Just making sure I'm single. Uh, I have one focus in my, in my business life at least. Yeah. And then I sent that off. I use a service that sends it back to me uh, 90 days later. Um, I could do the same in my calendar or uh, notes app. Um, and then 90 days later, it's nice because I get this uh, very clear uh, argumentation of why I should be doing what. Um, and I can also make sure I don't get uh, too distracted along the way because I, I readjust my path every 90 days. I know that during those 90 days, I don't need to ask myself all the time, do I work too much? Do I eat healthy enough? Um, am I spending my time on the right kind of things and with the right kind of people in my life? Mm -hmm. Because I know, worst case, I'm just going to be off for 90 days and then I do a reset. Um, so that gives me a lot of uh, liberty to focus on my day-to-day -day during those 90 days. Do you do any check-in in between during these 90 days to refocus or to rethink anything? Yeah, sometimes I do look it up, um, but typically what I do is, um, once I've visualized what I want to change and how I'm going to measure it, I then set up a tracker for it. Um, simple things could be uh, a list in my to-do application that says, okay, I want to I find a new home for these kind of projects, for all these projects right now, mm -hmm. so that I can just tick them off and I can always see them. I can see, okay, there's three projects left that I uh, need to do something for um, in order to reach my goal. Or if I wanted to lose health, uh, weight, I could, of course, uh, just get on a weight every day or like a weight balance every day and track my weight. Sure. 
So typically I don't go back to the email, but I go back to um, the tracker or the KPI that I use to measure my success um, daily or at least uh, a few times weekly. Cool. I think this also gives you a very clear focus, right? Yep. You also mentioned different areas that you track, uh, like friends to spend time with. What are the other areas that you track? Yeah, so I'm not going to get all 12 right, but there's something, there's some uh, like personal growth, passion, business, money, friends, relationship, family, um, health, fitness, nutrition. Um, there's probably two more that I'm missing right now, but those are the ones that... Uh, roughly cover it. I think the listeners can take them away as a good inspiration. Cedric, thank you so much uh, for taking time to have a chat with me today and for the great stories that you shared with us. I think there's a lot that we can learn uh, from you and from your way of seeing or going through life. And it was very inspirational. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me.